Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So uh, over the weekend, we had an insurrection at the United States Capitol. That's what we were just talking about. Aiden Macy... Zorowski, uh, whatever, uh, Aiden Zorowski, well, you choose to use the hyphenated version or not, is, uh, well, was a legislative aide to a Democrat socialist senator from Maryland, another one of the octogenarian club, Ben Cardin. And apparently he had sex in a Senate hearing room because it was videoed that's how you know and it was released to the daily caller and other publications and i don't know if you saw it i know justin and quinn said the apps they didn't watch it but i mean i was good like isn't that a sacred place how dare you shouldn't they be arrested for doing that i mean because you know january sixers were arrested for going into the capitol and going into places that were sacred Three one two. Oh, sorry. Three one two six four two five six zero zero. Turnkey dot pro answer line six four six three six. Type in uh, da then a quick comment. Young Aiden apparently has a Reddit account under which he goes by Bareback Twink <gasps> Slut. Bareback Twink Slut, which I think also was Mitt Romney's Twitter handle, wasn't it? Bareback Twink Slut. Bareback twink slut. Uh, his his account says it, it is quote used by my daddies unquote. <gasps> Gross. So if he's done this, I mean he must have done this before too, don't you think? This is just maybe the first time he got caught. I don't know why everybody's being such a prude. Oh, okay. Um, Senate the NBC News report Senate staffer alleged by conservative outlets. <gasps> To have had sex in a hearing room is no longer employed. Yeah, he decided to take leave of his uh, staffing job at Ben in uh, Ben Cardin's office. Yeah, I wonder if he was encouraged at all. He posted this statement online. This has been a difficult time for me as I have been attacked for who I love to pursue a political agenda. Oh, just hmm. you're not the victim here, okay? We're the victims for having to watch it. Uh, I don't think you had to watch it. While some of my actions in the past have shown poor judgment, I love my job and would never disrespect my workplace. And Of course not. Any attempts to characterize my actions otherwise are fabricated, and I will ex- be exploring what legal options are available to me in these matters. As for the accusations regarding Congressman Max Miller, I've never seen the congressman had no opportunity to cause or cause to yell or confront him. I guess he was confu- abused, uh, accused of confronting or yelling at Max Miller. I think that's the least of the concerns surrounding uh, 
uh, young aide and staffer here. But uh, well, yeah, wasn't he yelling "Free Palestine" at a Jewish congressman? Right, um, but I I think that's right. sort of subordinated the, to this more pressing matter. Three one two six four two five six zero zero. I mean, Mike Collins, the representative from Georgia, said uh, making porn at work and yelling "Free Palestine" at a Jewish congressman. I have a question. How long would uh, the filmmaker last in a free Palestine? Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's boring. Um, prosaic oh. response. What, um, the more interesting thing would be if um, uh, he had said uh, he had uttered free Palestine while he was making the video <laughs> to give it a little bit of a political angle. Uh, that, that would have oh, added it, some it texture angles. to the film. Oh, uh-huh. boy. It's a difficult time for me. Been attacked for who I love. I think it's where you love. There you go. Is Dan. the question. Um, but now, in his defense, I understand that Aiden said he was given a subpoena to appear in that <laughs> hearing room. Dennis in Crystal Lake, you're on oh, Chicago's Dennis. Morning Answer. Hey, Dan. Hey, Amy. You got. You gotta watch this thing. This is classic. Broke back mountain. Boy, did he break his back. Whoever was mountain, that guy, whoever was the pit. Thankfully, Dennis is cutting out, so we don't have to hear the rest of that. Oh, um, I kind of wanted to hear the rest of it, and then I didn't. Um, Ben Cardin, by the way, um, uh, the senator from Maryland, who uh, made this hiring decision ultimately. Uh, he uh, has previously commented on that sacred place called the Capitol. I refer to U.S. Capitol as sacred space because it's so much more than a building where the Senate and the House of Representatives meet and conduct business. It is the embodiment of our ideals, our aspirations, and hope, not just to Americans, but also to all of humanity. Yeah, and it's also San Fernando Valley East Coast, apparently, too, in addition to all of that. Uh, um, the Senate hmm. hearing room. I mean, what is Dick Durbin thinking? I, I remember, you know, oh, the table that you saw. That's well, a cheap the one. table that you saw, that's where he has sat many a times. Did you say Dick Durbin or Dirk Diggler? No, I said, I said Dick Durbin, ah. Dan. Um, he could have had a, a bit part in that. I mean, uh-huh. just, you know, because of, yeah. And I just say that this is a personal matter. He's no longer employed with the senator. Well, what? Well, I mean, I, I don't know. You know, again, why, why so prudish? I remember, I'm old enough to remember when Barney Frank was running the gay prostitution ring out of his apartment, and nobody kicked up much dust over that. I mean, that wasn't, you know, he went on to write uh, Dodd-Frank and uh, other disastrous pieces of legislation from there. So, I mean, cocaine in the White House, you got some, Housewife uh, in Virginia performing sex acts online, running for House of Delegates. Oh, that's you know, right. what's an aide having a, a blown off a little steam, among other things he's blowing off? You know? I just, it's so, cause, but the Bidens, remember, we're going to bring decency back to Washington, D.C. There's been nothing decent about their tenure here in, in the White House. Nothing. You mentioned the cocaine. Don't don't forget about their dog that bit Secret Service agents eleven times. Well, I don't. Know you, well, you have a dog bite decency. in Chicago. You get two dog bites. Your dogs, they're taking it to Mister Squirty. I think you're thinking about the wrong Biden family member. I, I would focus on Hunter if the question is 
disputing the contention of decency. No, I no, I reserve my right to judge the Bidens on what they're doing to their granddaughter, which is despicable, and still not acknowledging her or going to visit her. Remember, they're going to build a relationship, and then they're despicable for you have a son who's addicted to crack, and you give him access to millions of dollars? Despicable. I don't know. And the fact that they closed the case on the cocaine, <clears throat> they know whose cocaine that is. I'm, I'm really more interested in um, whether or not this is an isolated incident. Now, again, too, I mean, gay sex or uh, gay uh, sexual overtures in the Capitol is nothing new. I mean, don't remember Mark Foley and the, uh, don't forget, I should oh. say, Mark, you know, actually don't remember is probably better, but don't forget Mark Foley and the pages and uh, God knows what Denny Hastert was doing. Oh, God. So, yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting how these uh, sacred spaces uh, that are inhabited by our betters so quickly turn into uh, Sodoms and Gomorrahs, don't they? Lots of text messages. Uh, Dan and Amy, random sex is now love? Mm. Well, you know. Mary Kay in Western Springs. Hey, good morning. Um, yeah, pe- I've been accused of being a prude. I just like to keep things behind closed doors. What the heck's wrong with that? Not in Senate hearing rooms? No, I'm not in Senate hearing rooms. I mean, right. we are trash. This is Pottersville. The whole country is. Just get it all out there. Hang out your boobs. Do whatever you want. Wear a G-string and shake it in the camera at the <laughs> AMA Awards. You know, it's just really. But enough about Eric Swalwell. Hey, uh, <laughs> Good Thanks for the call, Mary Kay. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. You stink. I think you're going to have a good Christmas, all right? I like beef and cheese. You don't smell like Santa. An AM560. The answer. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. Young Aiden has inspired me. Oh, no. Let's uh, turn um, gay sex into lemonade here a little bit, okay? Okay. Uh, Okay. uh, Please show me how. The Senate should rent hearing rooms by the hour to pay down the debt. Oh. Great Christmas photo opportunity. Yeah. Why did, like, I don't need to see a gay guy. I'm naked. Yeah. All right. Anywho. Coming up uh, on Chicago. Do you think he well, real quick? Could he get arrested for doing that though? I I, I believe um, yeah, performing a sex act in a Senate hearing room would be some sort of disturbance of the peace. Would warrant a disturbance of the peace charge and yeah. um, you know public uh, indecency charge and yeah. all sorts of. But but I mean again, I you know 
Hey, look, we're, we're still uh, trying to get over the Jamal Bauman uh, fire alarm incident, <laughs> so there's only so much we can handle. Uh, I tweeted out, you better get out the Clorox wipes. hey This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. The Answer. Hey, business owners, is your business and money in good hands? Does your bank invest in your success? Hi, Mike Gallagher here, letting you know that when you need a relationship bank, Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. I love these guys. Not only do they have expansive industry experience, a strong financial track record, but they're also highly capitalized for strategic growth. That's so important. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. They know what it means to grow a business by designing solutions that are right for you and only you. These are real people. They're ready to help. So reach out to my friends at Signature Bank. Make the call today, 773-467-5630, 773-467-5630, or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Your business could be Signature Bank's next success story. Go online, SignatureBank.Bank, member FDIC, Equal housing lender. Signature Bank. Only the biggest stories. Only the biggest guests. And only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Maybe we need to take a page out of the the book of the identitarians, the race hustlers. You know, their say their name mantra, say the name of... Uh, individuals who've been killed in conflicts with police, for example. How about say the name or say their names, the names of people who have been killed trying to protect others? It doesn't necessarily uh, need to be limited to police either. Jason Johnson uh, was a 7-Eleven security guard in Oakland, California. Here's his story. Emotional and gut-wrenching scene in front of 7-Eleven. A young woman devastated over the killing of her father. She goes by the name Snow and says the security guard was 59-year-old James Johnson. I was interviewing a longtime customer when we heard screams in the background. I've been talking to James all the time, you know, as a good person. I'm very sad because I don't see no anymore, James. People were walking past her, so I went up to check on her to make sure she was okay. Police say just after 10 o'clock on Friday night, someone shot the guard inside the store as he tried to stop a person from taking merchandise. Police say James died at the scene. Snow says her father worked at the store for roughly two years. He lived in a building right behind 7-Eleven. Who's protecting the family of 7-Eleven? Because I know how my father is. They would do that for anyone who cared and loved. She and longtime customers described James as a protector and a kind man. He was a great man. He was a very great man. James is the good person, good for the community, and this guy, you know, helped to everybody and take care of everybody here. He was a nice man, giant man, pretty tall. Uh, uh, he would talk to everyone that came in. Criminals have repeatedly targeted 7-Eleven stores in Oakland. On Monday, investigators say someone killed a man pumping gas at the International Boulevard store. Two weekends ago, witnesses say eight gunmen robbed a cigarette delivery driver and a security guard in front of the Grand Avenue 7-Eleven. 
Yeah, the first thing you do to say their name is get their name right. James Johnson, not Jason Johnson, as I said, James Johnson. But maybe we should do that. Maybe we should. We've talked about this before. Just focus on the stories of the, the victims, particularly the victims who aren't also in the criminal racket. And we'll get to that in Chicago with this Sun-Times uh, piece that uh, appeared over the weekend, NPR Times, state-funded media. But what about that? Say their names and just tell their stories. And maybe uh, in neighborhoods where the James Johnsons are gunned down trying to protect a business, trying to protect loved ones, trying to protect people they don't know. Maybe uh, there should be a move to get, you know, the honorary street names for the everyday Americans like James Johnson who are on the right side of the line between civilization and barbarism as opposed to spending all our time pouring over and making excuses for those on the wrong side of that line. What do you think? 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 64636-DA, turnkey.pro text line. Yeah, I, that was hard to watch because I, I saw you posted that last week. And that woman, I mean, literally, people are walking by her, Dan, while she's sobbing. And no one stops to say, where, where's the humanity? I mean, I know there's a larger issue here, but that, that just really bothered me that no one... Like, are you okay, ma'am? Do you need help? And the reporter had to put down his microphone and go see if she was okay. Well, it's it's um, the thing that's complicated about this, and why I really focus on telling the stories of people who um, were hurt or worse, like in the case of James Johnson, uh, in service of others, is because there are so many people in Chicago and every other big city in America, because what you heard them talking about in Oakland is not dissimilar to virtually every neighborhood in Chicago with respect to the convenience store, the business that gets hit over and over and over again, the need to hire security guards, the uh, lawlessness that has ensued. I mean, it's the same philosophy producing the same results everywhere in big city America. Um, But there's so many victims in these same big cities that are also criminals. And so just being, I mean, not that anybody deserves to be uh, you know, hurt or killed, clearly. That's the baseline. But um, if you want to talk about extolling the people that are on the right side of the line between civilization and barbarism, James Johnson is on the right side of the line. But frankly, uh, the people that were profiled in this NPR Times piece Uh, survivors' voices have spent a lot of their life on the wrong side of the line. That's not to say you can't cross over to the right side of the line, as these individuals that are profiled in the NPR Times did for the most part. But, um, you know, if, if we believe, as I do, that what a society extols it begets, then maybe we should spend more time making sure that more people know the story of regular Americans like James Johnson um, when it comes to driving a more productive conversation about public safety. If you want to see people emulate James Johnson, then part of that is making sure people know who he is or was. Right? Does that make sense? 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line 64636, type in DA, then a quick comment. So these cut, these, these, um, uh, Essays in the NPR Times from a handful of people who have been crime victims but also been involved in crime. Really complicated. And frankly, um, that's okay. 
it's helpful in a sense because it it speaks to how complicated the issue is as we were just going back and forth about separating out the James Johnsons from the people who may be doing the right thing now, but the story is more complicated. And it doesn't mean that they the, what they're doing now is not also something that can be told and should be emulated as well for people to take uh, notice that you can cross over from being a, 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 a cretin to being a law-abiding citizen, even a role model. And so Marlon English... He was born on the South Side, raised in Chatham and Woodlawn. Just the language that's used here, too, is troubling. I'm quoting him. I became involved with a street tribe at a young age. Street tribe. Otherwise known as a gang. Okay. No, I mean, you could say, well, that's how they view it, and this is something we should take uh, some insight from. Okay. But I don't like he's he's beyond that now. And I'd like a little bit more context rather than the sanitized language. The block we lived on and who my friends and family were determined my affiliation. I witnessed the kinds of things you see in a movie, drug trafficking, gambling, shootouts, fights. Deeply entrenched in the heart of conflict, destruction and mayhem was Marlon English. Because of that, I've suffered a lot of loss and grief and gained a well-rounded understanding of why people shoot. Things started to change for him in 09. One of his neighborhood friends was killed. Then his mom relocated his sister and him to Rogers Park. He started working summer jobs, became involved with community organizing. But he would still go back to Woodlawn to be with his tribe. And so he describes sort of being caught in the middle between doing productive things, summer jobs and uh, community engagement in Rogers Park and street tribe things in Woodlawn. Then in 2015, he got shot and um, fortunately, of course, recovered. But the injuries, it's some serious internal injuries, took, you know, months to recover. Um, But here's sort of his takeaway. You know, the getting shot put me in a position to be stronger and wiser, he writes. The moment of reflection also helped me see that gun violence is much more complex than how it's usually portrayed. People not having what they need, not being able to access different pathways to healing or overall purpose in life often leads them to situations where they feel like they need to pick up a gun. I believe that people don't want to kill other people, but mostly do so out of fear. I understood why the person who shot me was hunting me and my friends. It came with the world we were a part of. He uh, now runs a group called Stick Talk that works with youth incarcerated with uh, Department of Juvenile Justice in Illinois. He said, working with them showed me we need to approach gun violence more empathetically. Listening to their stories, I realized how many young people in Chicago are products of their environment. Some of the young men I work with had their first gun placed in their hands by their own parents. Well, there's a Virginia mom who's just got a two-year sentence for allowing a gun to be placed in the hands of her six-year-old and then shot his teacher. So maybe that's part of the conversation, too, is a little parental accountability, including under the law. But that's not what he's saying. He's um, sort of of the rap that you heard last week when BLM Brandon rolled out his big news public safety strategy. 
I don't want the guys who shot me to go to prison because I know prisons are just a cage meant to punish people, not rehabilitate them, writes English. I often ask people to think about what if someone you loved made a mistake? Would you want society to handle them with care and grace or with punishment and violence? Would you want them to have the chance at rehabilitation or be thrown away forever? Well, uh, what to Marlon's question? Uh, I guess my answer would be, well, you know, Marlon, not all mistakes are the same. And um, uh, you can both punish someone and handle them with grace, um, even in the um, daunting confines of a prison. But um, this is a sort of a, a very stylized view of rehabilitation. Like if you don't attach serious consequences to serious breaches of the peace, serious breaches of another person's rights, that somehow you can coddle them into being a good citizen. And there's just not a lot of evidence to support that contention. I mean, it, it's first of all, um, justice is supposed to be retributive in part. There's two aspects of justice, retributive and rehabilitative. And Marlon and his friends want to focus on just one aspect of that. And, um, you know, crime victims uh, rightly have a say in this. But also we all have a say in this as members of a free society that ostensibly most of us want to be a civilized society. So we can talk about um, the um, gang culture in uh, Chicago generally and in particular neighborhoods specifically, but um, this whole sort of generic appeal to care and grace and empathy really misses the mark. But it's important to hear from somebody like Marlon English and some of these other crime victims because it makes you aware of just how difficult the public safety problem is in Chicago and how angry people should be about how it's being simplified by politicians and present just as politicians over the last 50 years. You have crime victims, repeat crime victims, who take the same sort of coddling of criminals, no consequences approach. You just get into a, a chat circle and do you know three sessions a week, and then that's the best way to keep them on the straight and narrow. And by the way, they get to walk away without serious consequences for serious crimes. That's the same thing that you're hearing from the politicians. But you're, these are crime victims in addition to former criminals. So the the line between uh, the law abiding and the non-law abiding is more complicated than it would seem because there's some that were not law abiding that are, are that that are now that are ostensibly on our side but they have the wrong answers in dealing with people behaving just like they did once upon a time even though they're doing constructive things now that's sort of, you know that's a secondary or tertiary complication that we don't spend a lot of time discussing and it really bring, brings it home with these anecdotes there's another woman who lost um, two of her boyfriends to street violence. She went to prison. And she, I mean, she's 
turned her life around. It's a you know, it's a success story of sorts yeah, and I she's love those. Got an education, and yeah, but 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 I mean, we can't be overcome by the sentimentality. I'm glad that she's turned her life around, and that she's doing productive things now, and she's out and so forth. But she still doesn't get it. So, as as positive of, as these turnaround stories are, when the those who turned around and are now engaged in the sort of community activism, the working with youth sort of thing, the violence interrupting thing, and they're parroting. The lines that you hear from politicians like Fox or BLM Brandon. How much progress do you expect we're really going to make? Marty in Naperville. Good morning. You know, again, we're the victim. Everybody's a victim. You know, burning chicken is a mistake. Shooting somebody is 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 not a mistake. Um, you know it. And as far as this rehab and such goes, well, that's what the prison system was originally for, if you will. But it's, it, does, it doesn't work that way. And how many repeat, repeat offenders are there that come out? You know, it's, just, it, it, it's the victim. Everybody's a victim. It's just, it's just ridiculous. Thanks for the call, Marty. Also, I mean, the success rates, too. I mean, you have to look at the numbers here when you're making difficult judgment calls with imperfect information about who should be released and who shouldn't be what kind of programs people should be entered into and which ones they shouldn't be in other words which show actual uh, success so i mean we talked about this before john ponder's group hope for prisoners out in clark county nevada which has an unbelievable success rate in terms of preventing recidivism with people coming out of prison, going through his Hope for Prisoners program, which is intensive and extended. It's not like, a, you know, uh, 10 hours over a weekend, you get a certificate and yeah, and then you get paroled or you uh, get your parole reduced or, you know, all the incentives that are there, drug treatment, and you get your sentence reduced and then you do this program and you get your sentence or your parole reduced and so on and so forth. But anyway... So I'm I'm happy to replicate to promote replicating programs that have demonstrated success, but we don't even have that conversation here. It's always inputs. It's always the organization that sounds good or the story that's compelling. And now this individual's doing something to try to be positive, but we don't know if they're finding any real success. We're just getting the version of events through their eyes and through their personal story. Well, that's not enough when you're talking about safety of the public hope for prisoners where you've got a um, recidivism rate that's a fraction of what the general recidivism rate is for uh, both uh, I, I guess in ponder's case that would be state prison inmates um, okay then we have something to talk about now let's uh, replicate may, may, let's make sure it's not just john ponder specifically see if you can replicate it with uh, leaders who train under ponder around the country and now we may have something and now if you say, well, uh, this person is going to get out at some point, and if we can put more of these, uh, pers- more, this person or more of the people that are going to come out through this program, then we can reduce the recidivism rate by X, and this makes some sense. But just a sentimental story, sentimental anecdote, and the same rap that you're hearing from politicians, which is why the NPR Times chose to profile these stories, well, that doesn't cut it. And it's not going to improve anything. And all the good intentions of the Marlin Englishes and the people who turn their lives around 
doesn't amount to anything except for them. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Merry Christmas. On AM560. Ho, ho, ho. The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. I, I have a serious question. Particularly for all of our listeners who work in big, bigger corporate environments. What does a holiday corporate video say about the culture there? What is the, you know, doing, doing a, a, a song or, again, Signature Bank of New York, we've... Uh, the, the videos that they produced, um, sketch comedy and and parody songs uh, that that all came out after the bank collapsed, had to be taken over by federal regulators. The, the time and the money that goes into that, I mean, it speaks to having a lot of time and money, I guess, maybe successful like Blackstone, which we'll get to. But what, what, what does that what does that say? Am I is my skepticism? Is that being um Oh. Is that lacking joviality? Is should we? It's just having fun. Uh, my my sense of it is why why can't you just do a happy hour? Right, go or, like, a bag. Go, go throw axes. <laughs> um, well, it says to me that they, one, you're right that they have way too much time on their hands, but also that they're they're selfish. Like look at me, you know, that attitude of look, oh look, the uh, gym and accounting. He knows how to tap dance. Oh, let's let's turn that into parody or try our hand at comedy. I mean, it's so self-serving to me. But I, I, anybody saw these videos, why would you ever trust these guys to handle your money mm. after watching these? Well, I mean, because I mean, for Blackstone, because you know their track record. If you've well, had your money with them, that, okay. that that's probably one reason. Well, I haven't seen I, the Blacks. I just saw the signature Bank of New York's. Uh, their three men. Remember they were. Tarred and feathered, they looked like chickens and things like that. It was so goofy. Uh, has anybody ever participated in this? Did this did this stuff just start happening in, with the uh, popularity of The Office? I mean, the television show. Is Three, that is that know. is that what precipitated all of this? Three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey dot pro answer line. You can also reach us on our text line, which is up and running six four six three six. Type in da. Then a quick comment. And true, you're right. We would love to hear some from somebody who has participated in a video like this. Or has perspective on what you think this says about the culture at a particular company. So Blackstone was founded about uh, 40 years ago by Stephen Schwartzman and Pete Peterson. And Schwartzman is like a, he's like a moderate Republican. Actually, he was a supporter of Trump's for a while and so forth. Um, so this isn't, this isn't so political, really. It's more cultural in terms of thinking about it and trying to come to a view upon it. Um, this they they titled their holiday video "The Alternatives Era," and so they they're dressed up in clothes from bygone era to some extent, including Schwartzman, by the way, pulls up in a VW Bug bus, and it begins. But we're gonna crush it. It's the alternative. 
dream of quick ascent. Now a trillion under management. We look for market mega trends and then life sciences. Get ahead of AI, always know what to buy. Tell our brands you can tell. Our superpower is our scale. They return for institutions. And I love solutions. Stay calm, stay positive, never give up. Never give up. We don't give up. Helping build wealth and security, a name you can trust. Not to be confused with the Black Rock. This tour rolls on. It's the alternative era. We buy assets and we make them better. I mean, it's kind of I'm earworm. Sticking with me. Yeah. yeah. It's not bad. I mean, it's no, nothing it's... offensive about it per se. I'm just trying to get a sense of what you think is is going on here. Maybe I'm trying to read something into it that is just, just a bunch of people who have, have done very well. I mean, Schwarzman's worth like $35 billion. That's doing pretty well. Um, and they're just uh, celebrating, blown off steam, having fun, and there's nothing more to it. I love the Blackstone, not Black Rock. He definitely doesn't want to be associated with Larry Fink. But um, I don't know. I Dan, don't know. I just uncovered with Justin Kosick here. Um, we made a video. Do you remember? And I say we because you were in it too back in 2018. I was not. We in made it. a ho- yes, you were. We were in a holiday. Not, video. not willingly. No, there was no weapon to your head to participate. Did I get? In this. Did, did I have to? Did was there a waiver? Do I have? Uh, I hope the statute hasn't run. I may still have a claim. Uh, it's on YouTube. I'm going to tweet it out. Oh yeah, you're in it. I'm what in is it? Too. What is it? We're singing. Do you have it, Justin? Oh, was that? That was like it's, a. Cl- it, wait, was we're a, importing it right. We're importing it into the. But that was a clip from like. No. Somebody did. Somebody put together like a mat, like a, a compendium of clips, and one of them was like a, a clip of us doing karaoke on a trip or something. Here it is. Starts off with Mike Gallagher. Wait for it. It's the most wonderful Mr. Broadway. time of the year. Oh, Ding dong. <laughs> With the kids jingle oh, belling and everyone telling you be of good cheer. It's the most wonderful time of the year. There's cutaways. All right, I'll stop it. But there's cutaways. Yeah. What? What? Is that was you. Did you hear? Did you hear yourself? You went, and you're rolling what, your eyes like, why are they that, doing this? That that is my trademarked exasperation, <laughs> and uh, that you have to pay for that. That's you have to license that. I'm tweeting this out right was now I, at Amy Jacobson. Yeah. How did they? How did they? I, I think you know. I was hanging out at Hunt, with Hunter Biden at the time, so I don't remember a lot about 2018. Uh, you look really young too. Wow. Whew, oh boy, you look like boy. a different person. We're li- so, we're, so the whole point here is we're living in a glass house. Yes, that's exactly. Oh my god. Oh my god. We have no standing to comment or criticize anybody on anything. God. And then we we did it was and then different people from sales and Marcus Brown and oh, Eric no. came in and were ding Terrible. dong ding dong and then 
I don't even remember it, and I'm, I'm already oh, you're gonna deeply it. disturbed by it. <laughs> by the way, I mean, yeah, you know, Gallagher. I mean, Gallagher does have Broadway chops. He does. So that helped, but I, kinda, I, I was a little pitchy that day. And why am I wearing glasses? Look like a librarian, and not a good one, if you know what I mean. Nobody's ever done a. Nobody's ever defiled themselves the way that uh, Blackstone did, and Signature Bank of New York did, and apparently um, Chicago's Morning Answer did. No. Uh, Dan and Amy is everyone at Blackstone. I feel like they're a bunch of hormonal teenagers. Well, I mean, not exactly. I, I mean, maybe this is like uh, trying to claw back some of your youthful exuberance. But if you watch the video, they're—I mean, I, you're saying they're behaving like that. That's but what, I, somebody I who watched it texted. I don't it. know. I don't. I mean, you know, again, there's something they'd say or do that's offensive. Uh, so I don't want to be like Grinch-like about it, but it's it just something about it strikes me wrong. It's almost like um, they're doing a little bit of. Um, of uh, brand management, reputation management, and sort of masking it as just sort of good-natured holiday cheer because, you know, these big outfits like Blackstone, trillion dollars under management, even though they're not BlackRock, Steve Schwartzman isn't Larry Fink, you know, all of these big financial institutions um, – you want them you to be doing have, have something some, better with their time? Well, no. I, it's it's more it's more their impact on on uh, the West and America's economy in particular. They're all engaged in rent-seeking behavior. They're all sort of in collusion with big government to varying degrees. And you know, this is a way to separate themselves from some of the more high-profile and obnoxious. Uh, representatives of their industry, like Larry Fink at BlackRock, like Jamie Dimon at J.P. Morgan. So, I mean, I think this is fun to with a point, but maybe I'm being too cynical. Uh, by the way, since this is an opportunity to go back and claw back Signature Bank of New York, no affiliation with Signature Bank of Chicago. Um, this, I mean, they didn't just do songs. They didn't do just do like, you know, try to do parody songs. They also tried to do sketch comedy. And sort of like sketch comedy that leads into a, a show tune. Listen to this really? from, you know, back when this was unearthed. Look, the only way we're going to do this thing is if we start a bank from scratch. From scratch? you got to be kidding. How in the world do you do that? Is there a book, How to Build a Bank for Dummies? All we have to do is apply to 19 Ugh. federal and state banking agencies. Wouldn't it be easier just to go out and buy a bank? We looked at that, but the prices are too expensive, and we'd be stuck with all their legacy issues. We have to make our own mistakes. But then we'd have nobody to blame but ourselves. We'd have nobody to blame but ourselves. Well, that is the stupidest thing that I have ever heard. We're sick of the stank of the big mega bank social stock one. It's absurd. What a terrible proposition. Like convincing the world to eat kale. What possible fate will become of our bank other than to diminish and fail? I happen to know for a fact that won't happen. Seriously? Why not? Because. We'll start signature. Yeah, signature. <laughs> our bank is beneficial as a signature. We'll start off small. 
but soon will sprawl. We'll build a bank that's built to last and to enthrall. Bare bones, safe loans, and amazing employees. You have to attest to a place to invest like Signature. I don't know. Would teams really come out to a bank like that? We would! Let's say you've a client to impress, but your bank's pushing something that's stale. Why not move to a place that embraces ideas and lets them prevail? You can stay with the mega bank where the policies come from above. Or you can be part of the policies where banking's the labor of love. You could have crummy systems with all of that drama and pain. See, you know, the other thing about these is I don't believe that all the... Uh, people in these videos are actual yeah. employees. There's no way because they're too talented, right? Yeah. I mean, do you know? Do you know any banker who can sing like that? Well, I'm sure there's a few, but that's got to be an anomaly to have yeah. all of them at the same corporation. Yeah, I think they're branch. hiring. Yeah they're, yeah, they're hiring talent, which also is a little bit dishonest. Dan, I just tweeted it out. Yeah, <sighs> I tweeted it at you so you can see your fine performance oh, from back gosh. in 2018. How embarrassing it's for so, us. And some oh, there's former employees in there, too. That Well, well we may be see. former employees if this gets out. Uh, what? <laughs> uh, I'm going to have to say. Uh, do, do I just have the uh, the huffing and puffing? And, uh, I, uh, and eyes rolling. And then, is but, that all I do? Yeah, but they come we they come back to you a few times. It's it's really good. Well, it would have been nice if they would have, like, dubbed in Brian McKnight as my voice <laughs> singing whatever needed to be sung in that. That's what we should have done, too. Apparently, the banks are doing it. Ugh. The big banks can do it. Why can't AM560? Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. I want Christmas. Just give me plain baby Jesus lying in a manger Christmas. On AM560, The Answer. So, I, I like <laughs> Liam Neeson. Uh, uh-huh. Liam Neeson is a, he's a really good actor. I know... He's just out with another sort of iteration of Taken called Retribution. It's like the 15th uh, different version of Taken he's made in a row. But, I mean, you know, he, he did Schindler's List, too. Let's not forget. And the original Taken was very good. Another action movie of Liam Neeson's that's very good, if you haven't seen it, is The Grey. Have you ever, have you ever seen The Grey? See that over the holidays. Okay. Uh, but this is good. Now, this is, this is the difference between us amateurs like uh, Signature Bank or Blackstone or AM560, and a uh, professional like Liam Neeson. This is, <laughs> this is so good because so, it's so self-effacing. Liam Neeson auditioning to be Santa. Okay. Over here. Whenever you're ready. I see you when you're sleeping. <laughs> I know. When you're awake. Okay, that, that's good. Let's try it again, maybe a little more jolly. Think Santa. I see you when you're sleeping. I know when you're awake. I watch you when you're sleeping. Oh, yeah. I know when you're awake. I know. I'm making a list and checking it twice. I'm going to find out who's naughty or nice. Okay, I, I think maybe that's a little too intimidating. Yeah, but I, if you don't mind me saying, I think it's right. You know, do you understand what Santa's saying here? It's, he's making a list, naughty, nice, he's detailed, he's single-minded, 
He's an eye in the sky bringing swift judgment. <laughs> okay, but, but he's also bringing toys to children. Not the naughty ones. <laughs> let me tell you something about that reindeer that ran over grandma. I will look for him. I will find him. And I will kill him. Ah, oh, it is great. Very, very good. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. The Answer. America First with Sebastian Gorka. Weekday afternoons at 3 on AM560. The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, we discussed on Friday that... Uh, as expected, BLM Brandon and the teachers unions are moving to eliminate the selective enrollment schools in Chicago. 11 selective enrollment high schools out of the 168 high schools in CPS is 11 too many for the teachers unions, of course. So any flicker of choice must be extinguished, and that's what they're aiming to do. So we predicted it. It came to pass. It's going to result in more people of means fleeing the city and even worse schools. That's something that's hard to do, but even worse schools than CPS sports currently. And so the need for reconsideration exactly is what, Amy? Well, so I was gloating a bit as a a mom of two boys who did not get into any selective enrollment high schools. I was there to pick them off the floor when they were devastated by it. As a coach, every time we play a selective enrollment high school, I literally have to spend time saying, who cares? Yeah, I know you wanted to go to Jones Prep. You didn't get into that school. Who cares? Don't let them win. Don't give them your power. Who cares? And when we beat Lane Tech in volleyball in two sets, I mean, we didn't beat them. We, dist- we owned them. I'm like, there you go. We broke the seal. We can be selective enrollment schools. It's always pitted kids against each other. Okay? And so... Well, well, yeah, so oh, no, ask me. Yes. It, it's always pitted kids against one another. Oh, you mean like when private schools play public schools or when rivals play one another like in sports like everything pits kids against one another that's what competition is they have nicer things than us or at least they used to now we're starting to catch up now you know we're getting in the game and football and other areas uh, academics too um we're starting to get but but it has been even coaches like they have an air about them because oh i'm in a selective enrollment i'm better than that and i talked to a a teacher Hmm. who's at a selective enrollment school and he said, we're not going to let this happen. I said, well, you're part of the, I mean, your dues, union dues, went to pay for Brandon Johnson's election. He said, we're not all on board with this. I mean, I know it's a five-year process, and he might be voted out of office before it takes effect. But not everybody is down with Brandon on this one. And here is Brandon Johnson. This was back when he was a middle school teacher for four years. Remember when he didn't make his kids take tests or do homework? Um, this was He knew back then that he wanted to eliminate selective enrollment high schools. When those students succeed at a selective enrollment, particularly black students, what ends up happening is all other black students who don't meet those same standards get shamed, right? See, so-and-so made it out. What's your problem? Like, how come you can't do it? These students are doing it. So do you, I mean, but also it's not just black kids. It's white kids, brown kids, Asian kids. It pitted, the system pitted each other pitted kids against each other so i I was gloating because i was thinking wow lakeview high school is going to be amazing when all the kids from blaine and hamilton and there's other schools in the area all go to the same high school but in talking to our neighbors um they're not having it they'll be moving out of chicago 
And yeah. you were so you were one hundred percent right. I well, I know. Um, of the course, near Jones. Well, of course that's going to happen. And I know there's some talk. Oh, they didn't say they're limiting the schools. Well, they're eliminating the selective enrollment part, which is the same thing as eliminating the schools. And frankly, uh, I, I mean, I appreciate if there are some teachers at those schools that want to take up the fight to salvage the setups there, but they're not going to win. Well, I, I just their jobs have been easy because they're educating the best and the brightest, whereas in other schools that aren't selective enrollment, uh, you have to uh, deal with behavioral issues, things that they don't deal with. So they, they won the lotto getting those jobs. Yeah, I mean, there are different pressures, and it's a different deal in different environments. I mean, all this, like, all this, they're being pitted, and they've got cushy jobs. Well, no, they've, they've got, it's a, it's a whole other dynamic. You've got, uh, generally speaking, a lot more parental engagement, a lot more expectation. Um, we've seen this with the private elite schools, uh, particularly when they're taken over by the same political ideologues, and um, you have... Uh, to engage in social promotion and equity policies that are anathema to the very idea of the school, which is what? Merit. And that's what you heard Brandon Johnson say in that clip. He, he knew it then. They all knew it. This is a Chicago Teachers Union posture from the get-go. This is every teachers union posture at its core. Central planning, no competition. There should be no competition to the government school system. That's what they believe as a fundamental tenant. It's a, it's remarkable to me. I can't believe they're doing this. I mean, do you understand their religion? You clearly don't. If you understand the fundamental tenets of their philosophy of life and of K-12 through education, then all of this is pretty straightforward and if you don't then you've been willfully blind or you don't know how to process information 312-642-5600 turnkey.pro answer line you can also reach us on our text line 646-36 type in da then a quick uh, comment everything that invokes merit is white supremacist and needs to be eliminated and um, if that means a black student that c could excel under his own devices, with, through his own work, well, and if other black students don't excel, then they feel bad about themselves, so what do we do? Harris Ber Harrison Bergeron style. We hold back the kid who is motivated to excel. That's what Brandon Johnson just said, because it is inequitable for any kids to get decent educations coming out of CPS. It's inequitable. If there are not enough lifeboats for all, then none are allowed off the ship. Does does is there anyone who's unclear about this? That is that is a fundamental tenant. I say again of the teachers' unions. So you uh, individual teachers, I'm not down with the union, and I withdrew from the union. All oh, that's all well and good. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the center of gravity in the teachers' unions. That is core, and there is no give. And to the extent they lose a temporary battle, they will continue to wage war. And so they clawed back TCS. And now they're clawing back selective enrollment. 64636, our DA text line, uh, turnkey.pro text line, excuse me. Dan and Amy, 
Selective enrollment motivated kids, not shamed them. Maybe that's how Johnson treated his kids. Um, Jeff uh, Carter, writing at his Points and Figures uh, blog, I moved my family uh, into the city from the far western suburbs in 2003. The one condition I had was that my kids attend private school, not public. It was expensive. How expensive? High school was 20k a year, and now it's over 40. But I wasn't going to do it any other way. We lived in a building, even though the carrying costs of the building were high. The opportunity costs of not living in the building were higher. But he, so he's writing this as sharing his own experience against the backdrop of the news out at the end of last week that we discussed and are discussing here again. Mm-hmm. He writes, this is the centerpiece of today's Democratic Party nationwide, not just Illinois. And he's right. I should. The teachers unions as one of the core financiers of the Democratic Party. So if you're with the Democrats on this, then you're on board with the elimination of tax credit scholarships, the elimination of selective enrollment. You are of the same philosophy because you're enabling it of Brandon Johnson's articulation there. If not every kid gets the same education, then we will claw back the kids that are trying to excel. If there are not enough lifeboats, nobody gets off the boat. This is the centerpiece of today's Democratic Party nationwide, not just in Illinois, writes Carter. If you vote Democrat, you're voting for the destruction of education innovation. They are truly evil people. I don't say that lightly, but when you advocate for equity, quote unquote, over merit and advance policies that are socialistic, you are evil, truly the dregs of society. If only people could bring themselves to speak with such moral clarity to their neighbors and within the school system, within these government school systems in Chicago and elsewhere, because Again, the fundamental tenant is not limited to the corporate boundaries of Chicago. The teachers unions believe that for the suburban schools and exurban schools and rural government schools, every government school district should be insulated from competition, period, full stop. Yeah, and it's not only selective enrollment schools, it's charter schools. They want to get rid of two in five years. And Brandon Johnson sends his kids to a charter school across town, so I don't... But this, this is great. Doing away with top-ranking, top-rated, and academically rigorous schools for the students who excel isn't going to make the lower-performing students perform any better. Alex in West Dundee. Hey, good morning, Dan. Good morning, Amy. So me and my siblings went to a Catholic grade school, and then I transferred uh, to public high school, Lakeview. Funny you mentioned it. Graduated in 1980. It was so easy. The only way you flunk and didn't graduate is if you cut class. And then you had so many days you missed, and basically you had to repeat or go to summer school. But it was dumbed down back then. I never brought a book home. I did all my homework at lunchtime, or at uh, we had a study hall class back then. And I got straight A's and never brought a book home. And I was no genius, but coming out of a Catholic grade school made it easy for a public high school. And you could tell they were dumbing it down already back then. We were like, this is for real. Was Andy so our, Moore your principal back then? No, I forgot. It was a, a, a lady, a poor lady went blind. I forgot her name. Um, but I, I'm not sure. It, it was Mrs. Something. Real nice lady. Um, but whatever it was, you couldn't flunk. There is no way. The, there was no demand for homework or anything back then. So it started way back. I started in 1976 and graduated in 1980. 
And me and my brothers walked out the first couple of days high-fiving. Like, is this public schools? We couldn't believe how easy it was. Thanks for the call, Alex. Yeah, sounds right. Generation after generation after generation. Now we're going to make the stand, say, teachers, when the die is already cast. I'm not impressed. And I also have... I mean, like we our discussion about uh, property taxation and having empathy for those being now taxed out of their homes. Sorry, I have uh, no tears to shed on the issue of K through 12 education either. Five years of opportunity to uh, build, expand, extol, amplify the tax credit scholarship program. And where's everybody been? I know. Can I have a bragging Uh, moment real quick? Same thing with selective enrollment schools. Mm -hmm. I mean, to the extent that, I mean, it's a little bit overstated, but in comparison to the neighborhood schools, I mean, it's a a wide chasm. There's no question. So I mentioned, I mean, obviously, that my son didn't get into selective enrollment. Um, Got his report card last night from Georgia Tech. Guess what he got? Straight A's. Good. So in your face. That motivated him. So he graduated first in his class at Amundsen in the IBDP program, brought college credits with him, and he's succeeding at Georgia Tech. And all of his friends that go to different universities, I, they, we were all gathered because everyone's home from college now, and they're all doing well and succeeding. So they love the idea. They're all glued, like, what? They're getting rid of selective enrollment? Oh, my God. We could have all gone to the same high school and yada, yada. Yeah, because that's but the like, purpose. Because that that's the purpose of high school. No, they well, it's just like weird. they're not go, just like they're not all going to the same college. It's just strange that I mean, when we grew up, you would go to the school, you know, your neighborhood school. Yeah, because you were in Mount Prospect, right? Pleasantville, Dan. Okay. Uh, but it doesn't matter. But I mean, I, I oppose that too. Of course, right. that you should not be discriminated against based on your geography or your household income when it comes to something that we have said is a public good and everybody must obtain a high school education. So if that's the mandate, then we should not be erecting artificial barriers to schools that are better fits for people, for different people based on their aptitude, interest, uh, intellect, as opposed to their geography and household income. It's, it's a very simple philosophy. And as I've said, literally maybe a million times, why does it work at the collegiate level and it doesn't work at K through 12? I've, I've never heard an explanation from the teachers unions or their wholly owned uh, elected officials how come competition works at the the collegiate level, but it doesn't work at K through 12? Works in every other at sector of our society. Competition, public and private, all sorts of iterations of public and private. But for some reason, K through 12 should be exempt, they say. Why? It's clearly not a performance-based exemption. David in Winnetka. Um, you know, Brandon Johnson, I, I think is right, but who gives a damn? In other words, you know, toughen up, man. He's right about what? Other kids feeling bad or feeling wrong. 
it's like the same thing with the partition, participation trophy, but only in a school setting. And look how that thing worked for everybody. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, well, it up. well it motivated that, some to be better, and then others just didn't what, try. What, is, is, uh, do we even have to discuss this? Why don't you apply it to sports? Why don't you apply the kid who's, who runs the 4-2-40, have him wear ankle weights because uh, nobody else on the team can run 4-2-40. So he's got to run a 4-6 just like everybody else or a 5-0 just like everybody else. It's, a, it's always it's fascinating. Well, all this talk about sports and everybody loves their breads and circuses and sports is the sort of the last most basically mostly meritocracy. And nobody wants to put ankle weights on the fastest kid on the field or, you know, uh, on the track team. Why not? Isn't it making the slower kids feel bad? I mean, is this not obvious to everyone? And we tolerate it. We tolerate it. We tolerate this idiocracy. And we have for generations. Don't look at Brandon Johnson. Look in the mirror. Oh, Uh-oh. Irish PM. He's back. <laughs> just, he's, she's becoming one of my favorite callers. Let's see what the uh, Prime Minister of Ireland. It's Irish. nice that he takes the time to listen to the show and call from across the pond. Although apparently he um, he winters in Ogden Dunes, Indiana, which is odd. Ke- uh, Prime Minister, Ir- Irish Prime Minister Kevin, and that's not the Irish Prime Minister's name, but we'll go with that as his gnom de plume, Ogden Dunes, Indiana. Dan and Amy, it's a great and grand uh, opportunity to talk to you this morning, but I have to say, uh, we in Ireland believe uh, in the woke business, and, and you're completely wrong. Your wonderful mayor there, uh, Brandon, he is completely right. Shame on those selective enrollment students. Shame on them for doing the extra work. Shame on them for trying hard. It's a shame when they can get out of the uh, tough life that they've led with the selective enrollment. It's just not fair. For shame. Shame on the whole place. Everybody must eat the same gruel. Please, sir, I want some more. Shame on you. Thank you, Irish PM Kevin. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. The more you listen, the more you listen, the more you'll know. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Morning Answer on AM560. The answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Merry Christmas. On AM560. Ho, ho, ho. The answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, the academic Walter Russell Mead, Bard College, formerly Yale. Uh, despite uh, teaching at elite universities, I find him have over the many, many years pretty realpolitik, pretty grounded, not ivory tower type. He uh, recently was in Israel. He said um, uh, he's struck by two things that defy the conventional wisdom, which is conventionally wrong inside the Beltway. First, that. Um, Netanyahu is a dead man walking. He writes, uh, even Netanyahu's harshest domestic critics aren't sure his career is over. The October 7th attacks wounded him badly, but he's pulled enough rabbits out of the hats over the years that few are ready to write him off. Um, And um, as to sort of a policy change amid his potential successors, there is no peace process movement in Israeli politics today. With the October 7th attacks still reverberating, no serious Israeli politician would dream of running on a platform of facilitating the emergence of a Palestinian state. So 
in terms of whether or not you like Netanyahu inside Israel, there is unity of purpose, as Mead's point. He also says that um, the uh, post-Israeli uh, elimination of Hamas campaign, uh, as it pertains to the governance of Gaza, um, there may not be as much room between the U.S. and Israel as it would seem at first blush, because uh, Walter Russell Mead argues uh, Hamas doesn't have the interest or won't have the won't have the capacity, even if it had the interest, which it doesn't. Uh, the Fatah movement doesn't have the standing to uh, make the compromises that would be required to uh, exert governance over Gaza without being subject to uh uh, the more, a more radical element of the Palestinians deposing the current construction. So what he suggests is that what you may likely, what you may see, what you likely see, and what the West should want to see is a new generation of Palestinians with perhaps the support of some of the other Gulf states, in fact, necessarily the support of some of the other Gulf states, um, provide a new governing coalition, if you will, for that area, so new faces with newfound ability to make the sort of compromises that both they and the Israelis can live with. Interesting. Interesting. It's an interesting perspective because it's so at odds with what most of we're getting from the uh, old media on the eastern seaboard, you know, from the people who just read off teleprompters and have not ever read a book of any particular importance big difference. Uh, for more on Walter Russell Mead's observations and other related topics, please be joined by Stephen Bucci. He served America for three decades as an Army Special Forces officer and top Pentagon official. He's a visiting fellow in the Heritage Foundation's Allison Center for Foreign Policy Studies. Steve, thanks for joining us as always. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me back on the show. So what about um, WRM's two key observations from his time overseas? Uh, I, I think uh, Dr. Mead is is spot on. Uh, you know, it, this idea that Netanyahu is gone, uh, you know, the Israelis are not stupid. You don't throw off the war horse in the middle of the war. Uh, and that's kind of, they know Netanyahu is a strong leader. They know this kind of event is really what he is destined to lead them through. Uh, this is not a time for a peace candidate, uh, and, and he's right. There's no case for that anywhere in Israel. Uh, and I, I also agree with his observation that Hamas has to go. Uh, Fatah is not really, uh, or anybody in the, in the wider Palestinian Authority are not really positioned to replace them. They, they're, they're lost. I mean, the other Palestinians that they do lead think they're a bunch of knuckleheads. The, the people in Gaza have no taste for them. Uh, and I don't think too many people, you know, among the Israelis and anybody else have any taste for them. So it really has to be somebody new that steps forward that, you know, has a Sadat-like mind that can figure out something that they can sell to the to the people in Gaza, uh, 
but can sell with Israel, and that Israel can live with and feel safe with that leadership team in place in Gaza. Uh, and, Lord, I hope the, the Biden administration, regardless of what they occasionally say now, I mean, they, they say multiple different things because the president kind of goes off script and, uh, you know, I, I could just see all those policy advisors cringing, but they really need to get their act together, stand with Israel, frankly, stand with Netanyahu, even though I know they don't particularly like him. Uh, but he is the leader right now. And if they stand strong with them, they'll get the support of the Gulf states. And with that, I think we can actually finally in my lifetime see some progress uh, in uh, with regard to Gaza and, and the Palestinians. This will that outcome will benefit the Palestinians far more than any other goofy left leaning solution that, oh, let's just give them, give, just give them some more land. It's okay. They'll, they'll be happy with that, and then it'll all be peaceful. That doesn't happen. It hasn't happened. Why do people keep suggesting it? It's just ludicrous. So um, is the Lloyd Austin visit, is this just play acting? Is this uh, Lloyd Austin going over there to tell Netanyahu, hey, um, let's uh, ease off on some of the bombing. Wink, wink. You know I have to say this. And then you say we had a constructive conversation and there's some things that we agree and disagree about, but we're committed to the overarching mission and so forth. Is this just um, Lloyd Austin being a political actor to play domestic politics with this uh, whole business of a ceasefire and pretend like they're providing pushback against Netanyahu when they know they're not and he knows they're not? Are they just doing this for our amusement? Uh, you know, I, I don't know what's going on in, in Secretary Austin's heart or what instructions he got from you know Blinken and, and the rest of the Biden administration. But I can tell you it's also not relevant. The, the Israelis are not going to back off. Uh, the Israelis will be very polite to Secretary Austin. They'll treat him with all the respect he's supposed to get. But if he is honestly pushing for them to back off, to be more precise with their bombing, which they are way more precise than we've ever been in any of our conflicts, uh, he's, it's, it's a fool's errand. It's not going to happen. The Israelis will say, hey, message received. It's nice to see you. Have a good trip back. But they're not going to do it. it that's just right. not in the cards. So well, that's what that's you know, that. Yeah, that's that's why I think this is, uh, uh, you know, a, a kabuki theater. Right. I, I, I don't believe that they believe they're going to impact Netanyahu. I don't believe that Netanyahu believes they believe they're going to impact him. I think it's all just uh, a big show for uh, domestic political considerations, namely their constituents who are lying on expressways around the country stopping traffic. Yeah, I, I, and that's why I say I, I don't know if the Biden administration is consciously saying we've got to do this just to, you know, handle the loony left part of our party, but we'll, you know, we don't really mean it. Or if, even if they did mean it, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. it, Israel's going to do whatever it wants to do because that's their responsibility to their people because what, the, you know, the public statements of the Biden administration are recommending it's not tenable. It's not appropriate. It's not what 
the leader of Israel is going to be able to do, even if it was somebody besides Netanyahu. Now, late last week, President Biden met with Americans whose loved ones are still still being held hostage. I don't know if that was just, you know, a dog and pony show, but is there anything at all going on with negotiations to try and get American citizens back? Uh, I have to assume there is. I, you know, I can't believe the Biden administration just saying, ah, well, they're just Jewish Americans. Who cares? Uh, I, I, I just can't see them doing that consciously. But it's, you know, the truth be told is every day that they're not released, makes it less likely that they will be. You know, we had those the three uh, hostages that were inadvertently killed during one of the uh, combat operations there in Gaza. That, frankly, most of us who, you know, ever had bullets shot back at us thought that was probably going to be the case with most of the hostages. It's been sort of a miracle that we got some of them out already. Uh, and I pray we'll get the rest of them out. But that's not the primary goal of this operation. The goal of this operation is to decapitate, uh, decapitate Hamas. And if they can get the hostages out, that's great. They're still going to do all the diplomatic efforts to do that. But that cannot be the primary goal of this operation. For uh, those who haven't had bullets shot at us, uh, as you have, I mean... That uh, the the accidental killing of those three hostages is obviously getting a lot of press, and it's uh, unfortunate. But uh, it's, assuming some of the details reported are true about being shirtless, having a white flag, arms raised, I mean, can you just give us like um, a practitioner's perspective on that sort of environment and how soldiers could be mistaken in that moment, how they could make that mistake? Well, yeah. I mean, if, if nothing else, the the ridiculous amount of adrenaline that's flowing through a young soldier's mind while they're an enemy who's willing to blow themselves up, blow up their own families. That's, it's, you know, as we would say, it's pretty sporty stuff. And, uh, you know, very dangerous, very quick uh, decision-making requirements. And sometimes you make a mistake. Uh, this is why we have friendly fire incidents in, in war. You know, you see somebody, they're wearing the same uniform as you, but they're dirty. They're in a place you didn't think the good guys were already. You see a flash of a gun and you think, my gosh, they must be shooting at me, and you fire. Uh, you know, the details of it, the white flag and all that stuff, I don't know. That's going to require some investigation on the part of the Israelis. The Israelis, like the United States and like most of the Western countries, really don't like friendly fire incidents. We really do everything we can to eliminate them. Likewise, uh, the killing of innocent civilians, and we investigate them when, when they occur to try and see if there was malfeasance. Was it just an accident that was something that, you know, is just a horrible mistake? Or was it, you know, somebody who decided, you know, I'm not going to follow the rules. I'm going to shoot whoever out, is out there in front of me. That's not the way we fight. So when that latter case happens, it gets investigated and people get prosecuted. Uh, I wanted to get your reaction to something that a Michigan congresswoman named Debbie Dingell said on Meet the Press yesterday about uh, the border. Uh, it just seems to me like this 30-second confused riff is um, precisely why 
we can't seem to do the basics when it comes to border security. Take a listen, see if you agree. What is your response when he says that the, the border is broken under President Biden? Border's been broken, was broken under Donald Trump as well. Our immigration reform, we have needed comprehensive immigration reform for decades. Let me also say, you've got small businesses clamoring for people. We've got caregiving, which is in desperate shape. And we need to bring some of these people need to be immigrants. But we don't want illegals. We don't want other people coming in. We don't want drugs coming across our border we need a balanced comprehensive immigration policy <laughs> so we need the people coming in but we don't need the bad people coming in i don't really have an idea about uh, how that should uh, what sort of system that should look like so we can't do anything it's the whole like if i can't serve every constituency simultaneously then i'll serve none yeah th- this is you know she takes some elements of truth in her statement you know, our, our immigration system is broken. It has been broken for decades. You know, people who try and follow the rules take five, eight, ten years to get in here. And people who decide just to walk across get, you know, a free pass, a phone and, and you know, a driver's license plus funding. Uh, you know, so it does need to be fixed. But the difference is that people like Congresswoman Dingle think fixing means you just open the borders, let everybody in. Uh, Others of us think Congress needs to actually do its job, pass new laws, and then enforce those laws. Uh, And But it does not mean give amnesty to everybody that's here already, open the border to anybody who's already walked up, you know, the length of South America and, and Central America and let them in. That's, we can't do that. But that's their answer all the time. The system's broken, so just throw the whole system in the trash and let everybody in, and eventually we'll get it fixed. Wow. The, the, the Republicans' view is, no, fix the system, get rid of the people who've come in illegally, keep the other illegals out until the system is fixed, and then we go forward. Uh, it, it just She starts with a grain of truth. The system is broken. But her conclusion and her solution, definitely that word in air quotes, is is ludicrous. It's not going to work. It's just a trope to open the borders some more, uh, which will not work and will actually hurt us tremendously. And what do you know about those 10 IEDs that were discovered along the border in Tucson? I mean, that could be deadly for U.S. Border Patrol agents. Oh, absolutely. Look, the Border Patrol gets attacked pretty regularly on that border. They get rocks thrown at them. They have people that fiddle with the roads that they drive on to try and get them to fall down some of the very large, uh, you know, wadis and stuff that we have along the border that are like incredibly deep drop-offs. They, they screw around with the roads so when these guys drive down them, uh, they, they can tumble down those, and, and we've had officers die that way. Uh, it's a dangerous job. Now, if you have people who are bringing in IEDs, Lord knows, that, that's just made uh, a very, very dangerous and difficult job more and more deadly uh, than it's ever been before. Stephen Bucci served America for three decades as Army Special Forces Officer and top Pentagon official. He's the visiting fellow in the Heritage Foundation's Allison Center for Foreign Policy Studies. 
Uh, Stephen, uh, when you're wandering around the Capitol, make sure you knock before you enter those Senate oh. hearing rooms. You just oh. you never know if they're filming. So just a little <laughs> word of advice. Uh, Stephen, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. That's a terrible, terrible view in my mind to now. Yes. Yeah, Merry yes. Christmas. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> Gonna make a Christmas thank you for having me, guys. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. On AM 560. The answer. Only the biggest stories. Only the biggest guests. And only the biggest opinions. This is AM 560. The answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Michelle Wu is the mayor of Boston by way of Barrington High School. But uh, she went from Barrington High School to Harvard. And uh, now as mayor of Boston, she's applying what she learned at Harvard, like neo-segregation. This uh, story that made news last week about a holiday party for elected officials of color only, electeds of color. And the invite was accidentally sent to a honky who raised the issue of an electeds of color only Christmas party. And the controversy ensued. Last week, Michelle Wu defending the uh, segregated holiday party. I think we've we've had individual conversations with everyone, so people understand that it was truly just a an honest mistake that went out in in typing the email field. And um, I look forward to celebrating with everyone at the holiday parties that we will have besides this one as well. So um, it is my intention that we can again um, be a city that lives our values and create space for all kinds of communities to come together. She sounds like Brandon Johnson. Like that's the kind of lingo but, you learn. Yeah. That's the kind of lingo you learn at Harvard. Uh, she's, all the she's, same. Yeah, she's riffing right off of Claudine Gay from uh, her uh, house testimony. This little thing. She's just mad she got caught. See, she made the mistake of sending it to seven white members on the council, and that's how mm-hmm. that happened. But it reminds very she, reminiscent she, of Mayor Lightfoot when she said, you know, after her first year in office, she would only talk to black reporters. She didn't get caught. She's not apologizing or anything. She's explaining it was a process here. It shouldn't have gone to those honkies, but otherwise it's fine. And I know the story goes that this has been going on for some time because, of course, the uh, the 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 guilt ridden Irish honkies that preceded Michelle Wu are just as bad of identitarian hacks as she is. By the way, Michelle Wu is married to a doughy, pasty, I'm sure, eunuch who's also a honky. But whatever. So I can't I guess he can't attend uh, the Christmas party with his wife, at least that one. So there's the the Christmas party for the electeds of color. And then there's other holiday parties that where honkies are allowed to come. And uh, um, so that's that's really nice. Um, by the way, just so you get Michelle Wu's perspective, in case you think this is a one off and she's just trying to continue the uh, protocols that she inherited. This was uh, her uh last spring at a saint patrick's day event in just over 100 days we have connected unhoused residents at mass and cast to housing treatment and services we've launched three free bus lines we've taken some big bold actions but i won't lie this past winter was pretty intense trial by snow trial by fire fighters union i'm getting used to dealing with problems that are expensive disruptive and white I'm talking about snowflakes. Snowflakes. I mean snowstorm snowflakes. 
Isn't she funny? Disgrace. Uh, Eli Steele, our friend, a documentarian, uh, how Jack became black, as well as uh, along with his father, Shelby, what killed Michael Brown, both good documentaries if you haven't seen them. He uh, wrote about Claudine Gay last week and uh, Michelle Wu as well. When I learned that Boston Mayor Michelle Wu hosted a racially segregated holiday party, I wondered, would I have been invited? After all, my father is black, but my skin looks white. The non-whites gathering was exposed this week for uh, after a city employee accidentally emailed invitations to a Caucasian council member. If I had received an invite by mistake or not, I would have headed over to Mayor Wu's office for an explanation. My mother is Jewish, my paternal grandmother was white, but my paternal grandfather was black and had Native American in- uh, ancestry. Would I be allowed in the doors? I've treaded these racialized waters before, so I can imagine the mayor, when confronted with my complex identity, would have replied, oh, of course, you're one of the electeds of color, though her answer would be meaningless. Neither my complexion nor my race reveal anything substantial about me or my character. Throughout the year, we work to boost, uh, we work to represent our communities with urgency and determination, Mayor Wu boasted on Instagram while posing a, with, uh, opposing in a picture of the electeds of color. Uh, you're wrong, Mayor Wu. This is not something to celebrate. Um, Mayor Wu is a racist. And she is. But that's what all the identitarians are. And so, um, you know, again, the Harvard graduates of the world, uh, the, the Harvard graduates go off into the world and then they do things like Mayor Wu uh, overseeing the city of Boston. For more on all of this, we're pleased to be joined by Jason Hill professor of philosophy at DePaul University, author of What Do White Americans Owe Black People? Racial Justice in the Age of Post-Oppression. And you can subscribe to Jason's substack. Moral Inoculation is the name of Jason Hill's substack. Jason, thanks for joining us as usual. Appreciate it. Good morning, Dan and Amy. Thank you for having me. How, how did you react to um, you know last week's uh, race controversy du jour, and uh, particularly our friend, our mutual friend, Eli Steele's response? Well, I think Eli's response is very, very apt. Um, I know Eli, and I think that, um, you know, it's it's not surprising. I've been warning myself, and I think Amy Wax years ago called for the defunding of universities. I think I went a little bit further, but I, I would think I was the first one that identified them as national security threats and breeding ground for enemies of enemies of the state. And Dan and Amy, I think if we really, really want to see the practical outcomes of both critical race theory, but especially critical race theory, and these DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusive inclusion initiatives applied in real life, um, we're seeing them right now because this kind of anti-white racism that the mayor herself is practicing as a person of color herself um the chickens have come home to roost this is crt critical race theory combined with these di initiatives writ large right and it's and it's what's really interesting is that when critical race theory was first um when it came on the scene in the 1970s but when it first reared its ugly head in its third iteration a couple of years ago, it really wasn't mainstream, right? People were sort of like really horrified and that it was saying all these horrible things. But no, this kind of anti-white racism has become completely mainstream, has com- become completely normalized. And we see the ugly side of the DEI policies, the inclusivity part where 
inclusivity really, really means um, inclusion, um, inclusion of everyone besides white people. Um, so I, I think that I was really, really, I hate to say it, but I was really correct that um, the universities have become, indo- were, are still indoctrination centers. They are breeding enemies of the state. Um, we see the radical pro-Hamas and pro-Palestinian uh, students who are Gen Zers mostly marching through our cities, marching through Chicago and New York, um, in favor of terrorists and these are the ventriloquists of the professoriate in our universities. And so, um, what, what do you think? Where, where do you think we are right now? Because, of course, there's a lot of uh, of meaning being attached to the termination of Liz McGill as president of Penn, um, as and then the flip side, of course, is Claudine Gay surviving as the president of Harvard. It was the McGill firing. Is that just a moment? But there's no real movement to qualitatively change the culture on college campuses, or or is this the beginning of a movement, perhaps? Well, you know, Dan and Amy, I really am of two minds here because the more I've been in, in academia for, for over 26 years, a professor for 26 years, so I see a sort of entrenchment of the the rot and the detritus and the putrefaction. I can smell it from where I am. Um, so I'm of two minds. One makes me think that it's it's the rot is so embedded in the DNA that nothing is going to change. But I tell you what gives me hope. I think it's there's no defunding that's really going to happen, at least not on under this administration. But it does put alumni and donors, just regular, even ten dollar to hundred dollar donors. Um, it does put them on notice. It does make them realize for the first time what's really taking place in our universities. And when you saw the retraction of that $100 million donation um, from, from, from University of Pennsylvania, uh, I think this is going to terrify a lot of universities to hold themselves accountable. And it's going to put the boards of trustee and its members, um, it's going to make them become more like sentinels and watchdogs. So I think we could, I, my hopeful side thinks that we're starting to see the beginning of something called accountability in these universities. Because all you have to really do is follow the money. And when donors begin to retract their dollars because of this kind of, I'm just going to use the word, it's evil. There's nothing, it's nothing. I think we have to recover a word that Augustine really shaped and formed beautifully. Uh, When you see this kind of evil taking place on campuses, and donors begin to re- retract their donations, um, then I think this is the beginning of a moral reactionary moment in U.S. history in terms of education. But it's not going to come from the government. What's the what's I mean, the what's the what, what's the distribution of power on campus, generally speaking? I mean, from your own experience as well as your own, your understanding of of college campuses um, writ large. Um, and I ask because there's a great story out in uh, College Fix, I think, uh, in the last couple of days. Northwestern, my alma mater, uh, it's in the news, so that means the value of my degree will be declining oh, again. Uh, and the uh, news out of Northwestern is Northwestern has two, admi- excuse me, uh, one administrator for every two undergrads. One administrator. Yeah. For every two undergrads. So my question is, what's the balance of power on campus? Is it with the administrative staff or the professorate 
you know, what, what does that look like in terms of let's understand exactly what we're dealing with if you want to uh, dig out the rot in, uh, that you describe on campus? If you want to dig out the rot, don't look for the professoriate. Look for the bloated totalitarian bureaucracy. Look for the first, well, the, 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 the provost, the associate deans, the executive deans, the associate executive deans, the associate provosts. Um, that is a blow to totalitarian bureaucracy um, because very often I can tell you that um, lines that come open, that is, um, let's say, in an anthropology department, sometimes will be dictated by a provost who will say, you need to hire um, a female anthropologist or a female philosopher specializing in decolonialism. And the department may not specifically have a need for such a person, but there's an agenda in the university. The, the, the university has a DIE quota to fill, and the department really has no need for that person. But the, the, the bloated administrative um, personnel, um, it might be the provost, it could be, it could be coming from the dean of the college, uh, has an agenda, and the agenda is to trans the university a little bit more, make it more trans-friendly, or to have more, um, uh, make it more LGBT-friendly, um, or to have it just be more inclusive or diversified, where we're not talking about diversity of thought. Um, we're talking about making it more uh, Marxist-oriented. So don't the, the professoriate are though, and the students are ventriloquists, and the professoriate are the sort of um, the purists who do the dirty work of indoctrinating the students. But in terms of the real power structure, we're talking about administrators, we're talking about provosts and deans and associate deans who are paid enormous salaries, who actually are responsible for the exorbitant fees, partially responsible for the exorbitant fees that students are charged. Um, we're talking about hundreds of hundreds of thousands of dollars that deans and provosts are paid. And then the minions, the associate provosts, and then the executive provosts, and the, and every dean, associate dean has an assistant working on it, him or her. Uh, so that's the distribution of power as I've seen it uh, on campuses. Well, what do you think? Don't you think parents should have a say in this too? I mean, especially when they're coming home, you know, for Christmas break now or for the holidays, that they should talk to their kids, like, what is going on at your campus? Well, Amy, I think now parents are having a say. I think before, right, I used to get calls from parents, and the calls were, you know, these were far, far and few in between. The calls were really, um, Professor Hill, you know, respectfully, how come Jimmy didn't get an A in the class? Because the parents, like the students, were really great grubbers, right, because these resumes were being written, their children's resumes were being written in utero, um, and there were highly um, overly scheduled children. So from the parents pregnant, the, the, the resumes were being written for the children to get into Harvard. <laughs> they didn't get into Harvard, they got into DePaul. Um, so now, but now with all this <laughs> critical race theory and all the mayhem that's taking place, parents are taking advantage. Why? Because, because as I like to say, um, the diploma that you get I used to tell my students the difference between yourself and the kids at Harvard is that the kids at Harvard have better connections on the ski slopes. Um, but qualitatively, they're not that smarter than you are. They just have better connections than you do. And your diploma is now qualifying you to be a floor manager 
at Walmart or Walgreens. Um, and this is coming home to parents who are paying $40,000 a year or $50,000 or whatever they pay at other universities. I know at DePaul they pay about thirty-eight to $40,000. And realizing that they're in debt for a college diploma that qualifies their student, their, their children, for nothing more than middle management, right? So I think no. We're going to, by the way, I think what should happen is that universities should be sued, right? Uh, there should be more lawsuits. And we are going to see more lawsuits coming forward. Um, and that's going to also have universities be held accountable. Um, and also, another thing, Dan and Amy, that I think is going to help the situation is that we're going to see the, the closing down of useless departments like gender studies, like queer studies. Um, like Black and African diaspora studies, these these are programs. These are just these are not legitimate fields of inquiry. I'll get in trouble for saying that. Who cares? I'm in trouble already. I've always been in trouble since I was a graduate <laughs> student. You, you think that? Wait, you think you think they're really going to get shut down? I mean, that won't that won't happen without incident. Well, I think as fewer people major in these useless programs and realize that there are no jobs for these diplomas mm. and that fewer and fewer people can take these studies. There, there was a time when people would major in these disciplines for self-enrichment self purposes or for self-enhancement, what they would call, I hate this word, uh, self-actualization, uh, reasons that they no longer have, you, you no longer have the luxury of doing that when you're paying a, Forty thousand or fifty or sixty thousand dollars for that type of degree. Condoleezza Rice did that at Stanford. I've done a lot of research on this woman. She did that at Stanford. One of the first things she did as provost was she shut down like ethnics. Well, it was reopened after she 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 went on to become national security advisor. But she shut down a lot of these ethnic studies and gender studies, or she morphed them. Um, so I think, from a fiscal point of view, I think that is going to happen at a lot of universities because. I mean, you see it happening in modern languages where fewer and fewer people are majoring in uh, Portuguese and, and German and so on, and these, these programs. That's something we'll watch. Uh, professor Jason Hill, professor of philosophy at DePaul, author of What Do White Americans Owe Black People? Racial Justice in the Age of Post-Oppression. You can subscribe to Professor Hill's substack. It's entitled Moral Inoculation. Moral Inoculation, Inoculation is Jason Hill's substack. Professor Jason Hill, thank you as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan, Amy. Thank you. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. Merry Christmas, you filthy animal. The answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Merry Christmas. On AM560. Ho, ho, ho. The answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Um, the pollster that I've uh, used a lot over the last 20 years in political campaigns, Tony Fabrizio, Fabrizio Lee, uh, sat down with the Wall Street Journal to talk a little bit about uh, the polling at present, what the landscape provides in terms of 2024, with the look ahead, I mean, understanding where uh, we stand today. Things can change. But where we are today, says Tony Fabrizio, we're at a point where the mood in America is very, very sour, pretty much universal. When you look at people's angst, particularly economic angst, you realize there's a disconnect between 
what was just shown on the top of the fold, that the economy is doing well, low unemployment, market returns. What you show there with the macro numbers and what they're experiencing at the micro level when they're going grocery shopping or buying gasoline or trying to apply for a home mortgage. When you look at where Biden has deteriorated, uh, said Fabrizio, it's been largely weighed down by the economic concerns that people have. The sentiment really is not improving. If anything, it's gotten slightly worse. Despite all the good news out there, they're not feeling it on a day-to-day peop- on a day-to-day basis. And he goes on to say, um, the party out of power is the one that takes the lead on the wrong track number. But here, when you look at younger Democrats, particularly Democrats under the age of 50, they're way more sour about the direction of the country and particularly these economic measures, Bidenomics, than their older brethren in the Democratic Party. Uh, He's asked about um, the 92 campaign in terms of a comparison. The uh, by the time the George W. Bush's George H. W. Bush's reelection had rolled around in 92, the uh, economy was growing at a four percent annual rate. So uh, how did Clinton win? Well, ultimately, voters didn't believe it. There's a Fabrizio said there's another measure we asked in the survey, your personal financial situation. It's significantly underwater by about 30 points in um, the survey. That's where the rubber meets the road. Even if we get to a point where we're getting 4 percent growth, the problem is that jobs numbers and stock numbers for most people are amorphous. Inflation is something that people feel every single day. Um, And he goes on to uh, uh, talk a little bit about the Biden Trump matchup. Uh, And basically, he says, look, uh, when you look at the comparisons, Trump wins the comparisons with Biden on economy, jobs, inflation, the border, foreign policy. Biden wins on Social Security and Medicare and abortion and things of that nature. But guess what? The ones Donald Trump are winning are the ones that are most important to the voters right now. And that explains uh, Trump's move in the polls against Biden uh, generally and in the swing states that we discussed at the end of last week into this one. But there's something else happening, too, if you look at uh, some polling. And I know people may scoff at this, but we're here to raise what's being reported and discuss it. Um, Nikki Haley has made a move in New Hampshire, closing in one CBS News poll to within 15 of Trump, 44 Trump, 29 Haley, 11 DeSantis, 10 Christie. There's still ways to go, even if that's accurate. And that same CBS News poll has Trump up 58 to 22 on DeSantis in Iowa to 13 for Haley. So, I mean, 36 on DeSantis and 45 on Haley in Iowa. So he wins Iowa. And if he wins by a wide margin a little less than a month from now, that gives him momentum a week later going to New Hampshire, where uh, unless something significant happens over the next 30 days, he's likely to have some sort of double digit lead going into New Hampshire. So I'm not racing the prospect of a real primary campaign quite yet, but it's worth discussing. So let's do so to uh, pour over some of these numbers with us. We're pleased to be joined by our friend Scott McKay. He's the publisher of The Hayride, a contributing editor to The American Spectator, also author of The Revivalist Manifesto. And he's got a new book out about the Obamas as well. Scott, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, how are you? Happy Monday. 
Good. So, um, you know, you heard uh, what uh, Tony Fabrizio had to say based on his surveys and what he's seeing in the landscape in a sort of a general election environment. And then the CBS News poll that provides a a flicker of hope for the uh, never Trumpers, uh, a flicker of hope for people like Jamie Dimon that maybe Nikki Haley can make a race of it. What's your assessment? I don't think Nikki Haley makes a race of it. I think more particularly Republicans despise Nikki Haley than actually like her. Um, And I think that Donald Trump is still at or above 50 percent in all of these uh, polls that you see. And yes, maybe there might be something of a race in New Hampshire and something of a race in South Carolina. But once you get beyond that and you get into sort of the Super Tuesday states and the things that come later, I mean, those are all going to be massive Trump victories. And, um, you know, so he's going to sew up the nomination pretty easily. The only hope that there there ever was going to be that he was not going to be the nominee, if you're not for Donald Trump, would have been if Ron DeSantis was able to eat into enough of Trump's supporters to make it a race. But, you know, that's a Trump 2.0 candidacy when the public is not really done with Trump 1.0. So, I, you know, I mean, I, like the, all of that is fine and well and good. The real, you know, again, the real question is uh, not the primary, but the general election. And, you know, how much trouble the Democrats are in if these third party people that are in the race are going to pull the kinds of numbers that they're pulling at, which I don't know if they will. But if RFK Jr. is sitting on 20 percent, Joe Biden is not going to get reelected. Yeah, but they keep saying that those that he's pulling away support from Trump and not Biden. That's not what the polling says. I'm not buying any of that. I mean, it's just not what the polling says. And and that's with RFK and some of these polls at 8 percent. So, I mean, RFK Jr., Stein and Cornell West. I mean, they're they're going to pull uh, independents who are looking to make a rational decision about from the two likely candidates who the two candidates who actually have a chance to win make their vote count disaffected independents that see the country upside down i mean there's going to be a flight to quality in the sense of what's the realistic choice it's trump versus biden and if you're looking if you're a wrong track voter then you're you're going to default to trump particularly when the options are people to the left of biden so um yeah, I mean, I just and that's that's what the polling is telling us right now, which shouldn't surprise, which I suppose shouldn't surprise. Well, I, I, what I'm saying is, is that when if and when RFK Jr. takes to the campaign trail, the fact that they haven't given him Secret Service protection uh, means you want to throw an if in there. Um, you know, I, he runs as a leftist and you never know. You may get frustrated Democrats who just decide, you know what, I'm going to make a protest vote because I don't like any of this. Um, yeah, well, that there's helps that. Trump. I, yeah, that does help Trump. And, and that's why I'm, I'm a little dubious on the polling that says that, you know, that these third party guys uh, harm Trump more than Biden. I just, no, that, I, no, I'm saying the opposite. No, 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 no. Yeah. The, the polling consistently so far when even RFK or RFK plus the other two is included, it consistently benefits Trump. That's the point. I yeah, agree. That's, I where agree. Yeah. that's where it's at. So, uh, I, so I, you know, I think that's where we are. I think the, the the fact that these guys will not shut up about how Trump is a, you know, dictator and a Hitler in the making and all of this kind of stuff. Um, I, you know, I, I'm wondering if maybe that, you know, that 
with the legal stuff not really having the effect that they wanted to, you know, maybe now they're calling all the James Hodgkinsons out uh, to, to chase Trump <laughs> around with rifles. Well, I mean, well, the other thing, too, is, I mean, think about, you know, for first the squishy uh, Republicans in New Hampshire, you know, John Sununu notwithstanding, boy, that was a pretty big turnout in Durham, North uh, New Hampshire for uh, Trump at that rally over the weekend. I mean, you know, the energy that still exists behind that guy is just exponentially different than any of the other candidates in the field. Agreed. And it, and it ties into, you know, the first part of your open, which is Fabrizio's polling that shows people in such a sour mood, right? Donald Trump has always been the antithesis to American uh, politicians. And, and you know, I, if you're on the left, you hate Trump, but anybody else at least likes the idea of Trump because they think that the political class is so toxic. And of course, they're not wrong. Um, and, you know, and the Biden message team does themselves no favors by running around talking about how they've defeated inflation and that the inflationary numbers are down. Like, let's say, and this is like by no means a uh, um, an unusual circumstance. So the prices jump 25, 30 percent in a couple of years for foodstuffs and things that you have to buy, right? And you are now running up a credit card debt to try to make ends meet, and the credit card debt is 20%, right? So the fact that those prices might stabilize still at a level you cannot afford, and you have cut back as far as you can, but your family has to eat and you have to pay rent and all of this kind of stuff, the fact that inflation is not over the top anymore doesn't help you. Your credit card debt mounts every month at 20%. And so the idea that, oh, look, look, we've licked inflation and prices are stable. It's like, no, these people are all underwater and they're drowning. That's why Bidenomics is not a success. That's why you can run all of the headlines you want, you know, above the fold at the, at the Wall Street Journal or Washington Post, and it doesn't make any difference to these people. They know that their personal situation is desperate. And nothing yeah. has been done to fix that. You have to lower those prices. You get, the rate of inflation is just the rate at, the, at which things are getting worse. But things are already like so bad for the, I don't know, 50, 60 percent of the American public that their purchasing power is nil and they don't have the ability to take a vacation. They don't have the ability to go buy a new house or a new car or even a used car. They don't have the money to do anything that they want to do with their lives. And they feel like the American dream is slipping away because of what you've done to them. Well, that's the 30 point spread to the negative that Fabrizio is referring to in terms of personal financial situation. That's exactly it. And, um, and Biden's effort to tell companies to slash their prices because inflation has slowed is not particularly persuasive either. And so, uh, you know, he's uh, he's left betwixt and between because there's just seems to be an unwillingness to make a, a substantial pivot, which is all to the to, to, to uh, the benefit of Trump at this point and Republicans, if they can seize the opportunity. Um, That's right. Speaking of that, speaking of Republicans uh, being. Uh, unified in this moment to seize said opportunity. Uh, I 
thought the um, mumblings coming out of the Senate after the impeachment inquiry vote last week were rather odd. First, uh, Chuck Grassley expresses some skepticism about uh, impeaching Biden. Then Mark Wayne Mullen makes an argument about uh, he'll have to prove that he did uh, things that rise to the level of high crimes and misdemeanors while president, not while vice president. And then Lindsey Graham had this to say on Meet the Press yesterday. Okay, let's turn to the other big story on Capitol Hill, the impeachment, of course, uh, of impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Your colleague, Republican Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa, said that he does not see any evidence, quote, that the president is guilty of anything. Do you agree with him? Is there any evidence so far? You know, I haven't really been paying that much attention to it. They have to to prove that President Biden somehow financially benefited from the business enterprises of Hunter Biden. We'll see. Have they done it yet, in your mind? If there were a smoking gun, I think we'd be talking about it. But Sounds like some Republican senators that aren't interested in being in the majority in the Senate. Well, you know, I I can't really speak for Chuck Grassley because he's generally been pretty good when it comes to investigating corruption. So that is odd. Lindsey Graham does nothing but damage when he opens his mouth. Everything Lindsey Graham does is uh, is calibrated to make Republican uh, dominance in elections more and more impossible. So it's absolutely not a surprise that he would say what he said. What's being missed here is this is an impeachment inquiry. It, lo- it looks for smoking guns. It seeks the proof these guys say they don't they don't see. Um, well, of course, of course, but of course, though. But but the people that are offering those weak res- uh, responses, making those statements, they understand that. So they're saying oh, those yeah. things despite the fact they understand that. So so, you know, it calls and Mark Wayne Mullen, Oklahoma, you know, he wants to fight the Teamsters, literally. Um, and, I mean, what? so, you know, what is going on within the Republican caucus in the Senate as it pertains to this impeachment there? that this, It sounds like there's some desire to undermine what House Republicans are doing. Well, I, I mean, that caucus is run by Mitch McConnell, who is the number one underminer of Republican and conservative politics in America since 2007. Um, I, I mean, it's it's by no means a surprise that these guys and, and certainly there are Republican senators who are on the opposite side of this. Um, but, you know, these guys that we're talking about, you know, are the usual suspects. They're always the ones that torpedo their own party. Um, and now, of course, the impeachment piece against Biden is what's going on. So they're going to torpedo that. And I, I think it's somewhat a retaliation for uh, not kowtowing on Ukraine, um, which, you know, the, the uniparty that these guys in the Senate belong to is desperate for that $60 billion to get out of the House so that they can vote it through and go spend it. Um, and that's not happening. So, yeah, you're going to see pushback on other things from them. Well, I really want to ask you quickly about Leave the World Behind. We actually watched it this weekend, and uh, uh, you're not a movie critic, but you've turned into one. Well, I'm, I'm an Obama critic, right, because the new book that's out is Racism, Revenge, and Ruin. It's all Obama, uh, and it talks about 
the, the destruction of the America that we all knew and loved that existed in 2007. And uh, along he comes to make an end of the world movie. And if you'll notice, having watched it, the end of the world is not that big a tragedy in the eyes of the Obamas, right? Yep. You go watch the last episode of Friends uh, to celebrate the end of the world. Um, this is a really misanthropic, oh, bleak weird. movie, much more so than other end of the world flicks where at least there's some semblance of, you know, recognition. It's a bad thing if the world goes, uh, uh, goes to seed. And in this, it's just kind of a, just kind of a thing. It just, this is what's happening. And it, it, to me, it was very stark the way it was presented that way. And then you find out that Barack Obama gave copious notes on the script uh, to Sam Esmail before this movie was made. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm, yeah, sure. I mean, it's 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 classic nihilism. Eh, you know, it's don't it's like it's the whole end of the world thing. It's so I'm so put upon by the end of the world. <laughs> just it's everything is everything is too cool for school. I, I, I mean, I, I I haven't watched it. I'm not going to because oh, why waste the time? Uh, Scott McKay is the publisher of The Hayride, contributing editor at The Spectator, American Spectator, author of The Revivalist Manifesto, as well as his new book he just mentioned, Racism, Revenge, and Ruin. It's all Obama. Scott McKay, thanks as always. Thanks, guys. Have a good ride. Have a good one. You too. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. I want Christmas. Just give me plain baby Jesus lying in a manger Christmas. On AM 560, The Answer. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, it persists. We were just talking about uh, Leave the World Behind, the Obama movie we talked about last week, too. Don't Trust White People. Right. You know, the stuff that's embedded in the film that's of the identitarian race hustle variety, as you would expect from the Obamas. I, I just can't believe a former president would be behind would be behind such a despicable movie with so many different agendas that they, they hit upon. Whether it be, you know, who our real enemy is out there, how we're going to turn on each other in the end. I mean, it's just, and then it's so, there's a scene that is so grotesque. It has to do with teeth, and that's all I'm telling you. I don't want to ruin it for people who haven't seen it oh uh so there's another film that's yes. coming out the american society of magical negroes that's the name of the film uh boy how david allen greer has fallen i really liked him he's a really good comedic actor you may remember him from in living color with the wayans brothers oh, okay. uh american society of magical negroes here's the real subtle point of that film. I know you can feel their discomfort, Aaron. Watching you walk through a room full of white people was the most painful thing I've ever seen. Excuse me. Sorry. I don't want to take you to a job interview. There's a recruiting class starting right now, and we got to get you in it. Welcome to the American Society of magical Negroes. I don't really understand. It's easier to say. 
What's the most dangerous animal on the planet? Sure. White people, when they feel uncomfortable. White people feeling uncomfortable precedes a lot of bad stuff for us. That's why we fight white discomfort every day. Because the happier they are, the safer we are. The name needs a little updating, maybe like magical black people, or I guess that doesn't have the same ring. Get ready. Oh, wow. Your first client is a Jason Munn. His morale is far too low. Hey. Hey. Darn it. I was hoping there was a station right next to him. Oh, is this one spoken for? No. Yeah, it's actually fun and weirdly relaxing. It's like being a secret agent with none of the danger. Hey, I'm Lucy. Nice to meet nice you. Nice to meet you. She's great. Yeah, she's cool. You kidding? Come on, man. She's smart and funny. And... I know what you were doing going on about her. You're trying to set us up. No, no, no. That's not what I was doing. You cannot have a relationship with Lizzie now. Because if you don't put Jason first, everyone's magic will fail. I've always felt like it's my job to make white people feel comfortable, and here it literally is. But maybe it shouldn't be. I got a great plan to ask her out, but I'm gonna need your help. Do you think you could like work your magic? Hey, is you talking about me? Hey. Oh my. Wait, are you? But I travel along. Defied the society. Who was it? You didn't let her go like I told you. If you'd interfere with her or your client, you could have your memory erased. You won't even remember she existed. Even though we might never see each other again, I need you to know that what we had was real. I'm curious to see how you're gonna make it out of all this. Three one two six four two fifty six hundred Turnkey Dot Pro Answer Line six four six three six D A Turnkey Dot Pro Text Line. The job is to uh, make white people feel comfortable because there's nothing more dangerous than a white person who feels uncomfortable because of the presence of a black person. That's the gist. Why are we still pushing this false narrative? Mm, why indeed? Oh, oh, because we have an election coming up, right? And, and by the way, again, David Allen Greer. I mean. You know, if we would do to uh, uh, these identitarian actors what uh, they like to do to others uh, in this uh, neo-Jacobin era, um, David Allen Greer, along with Damon Wayans, in a great skit they used to do, Men on Film, where they play two gay guys. I ain't going to touch it, but the title alone gets two snaps up. Come on out the closet. Don't be afraid to be who you is. Black, white, whatever. Mm-hmm. Ain't that the truth, Ruth? Oh, I loved him. <laughs> and I really have to admire the producers for Dan to cast a man in that role. I mean, that really made the picture for me. Hello? I mean, just the, right. I mean, you can't stereotype anybody who is part of a marginalized uh, group, right? And they, they certainly did that back in the day. There should be all sorts of um, uh, uh, calls for apology and contrition and amends to be made, right? And so here we have this latest iteration of the uh, race hustle that's supposed to be presented as a, you know, rom-com romp of sorts. But, I mean, this is what Hollywood is, is fairly good at doing, although it's gotten less good as it's become unable to do anything with subtlety. Uh, and that's to advance uh, popular tropes through a popular medium. Three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey dot pro answer line six four six 
1-800-636. Type in DA, then a quick comment. And that's really happening, right? That's what's really going on in the culture today is uh, whites demanding that blacks make them feel comfortable because they're sort of, again, inherently uncomfortable. That's the that's the argument as it goes from the race hustlers. Um, this story out of the UK, uh, a, a CEO of a insurance company announces that white male new hires must personally be signed off by her as part of the company's move to improve its diversity. 22,000 strong workforce, senior white male new hires must be personally approved by the CEO, Amanda Blanc, said the policy forms part of the company's efforts to stamp out sexism. So only white males can be sexist, not males of color, question mark. Okay, whatever. Uh, She, uh, speaking at uh, some symposium, she said that... um, uh, not because I don't trust my team, but because I want to make sure the process followed for the recruitment has been diverse, properly done, not just a phone call to a maid saying, would you like a job, pop up, and we'll fix it up for you. So that's why she personally approves hires from that that uh, meet or that, that uh, are from that certain demographic. Uh-huh. The scope of the charter is to get more women in senior management roles. Uh, because if you have more women in senior management roles, the behavior of sexism will go away. Apparently, she never saw that Demi Moore, Michael Douglas movie, speaking of uh, uh, art imitating life. Anyway, this is what's going, what's actually going on, despite this, uh, the boogeyman politics that Hollywood and other race hustlers play. How about this uh, column from Teray? This guy used to have a show on MSNBC, remember? Teray, one word, one name. Holiday gifts for white people, even though they owe us reparations, so they really don't deserve any gifts at all. That's the title of this column. (laughs) That's the title? That's the column over at the Griot. Uh Holiday gifts for the honkies in your life. He he uses white people. I use honkies. Holiday gifts for white people, even though they owe us reparations, so they really don't deserve any gifts at all. I'll give you a couple examples of what he offers to the question of what do I get the whites in my life? Is that how people think? I mean, the the um, the caricaturing of black people by black people, by these politicized race hustling black people in entertainment like Teray or or the producers of but which, by the way, are honkies of the uh, American Society for Magical Negroes. Of course, nothing like the white leftists using uh, blacks in particular as mascots and then suggesting that it's conservatives that uh, uh, believe that they're magical people or they we have to be uh, catered to in such a way and so on and so forth to sort of dehumanize them and and turn them into minstrels. I mean, that's the that's the implicit accusation, isn't it? So tiresome to raise uh, gifts that you can get the whites in your life if you're black. The super soul pack of seasonings from Soulfit Grill. We know white people don't season their food. Give them this pack of seven seasonings and they'll have a variety of spices from a black owned company right at their little white fingertips. There's a lot of black owned seasoning companies that you could try. If you spice up their little white lives every time they eat, they'll thank you. Very friendly. An invitation to a cookout. I don't mean that in the way you think. I hear the way black folks say, oh, that white boy does whatever really good. So he's got an invitation to the cookout. That's so corny. 
No white person deserves an invitation to the cookout, not even if they're your spouse. Hmm. It's supposed to be the blackest or the it's supposed to be the blackity blackest event ever. It's where we all come together as a family. No, no white person could ever do anything to deserve an invitation to that. I'm saying you should give them an actual written invitation to the cookout quotations. White people know that we sometimes mention an epic cookout and sometimes we say certain white people can come. You're going to use that little bit of knowledge against them. You mock up an official looking invitation to the cookout. Do it the way we do it. Put a picture of Dr. King on there wearing a gold chain. Write duck cookout. Provide a time and address. Then when the time, the place, and the white person all come together, you and your black friends will be gathered together in the distance, hiding and watching this white person stumble around in an empty space looking for the cookout, while you and your black friends point and laugh about how stupid that white person was to think they would ever be invited to the cookout. That could be amazing content for TikTok. Really? So insulting. It's insulting to all parties. Yeah. But this is supposed to be the uh, avant-garde thinking of the race-hustling black leftists like Tere and all the rest of the writers at the Griot. A noise he- uh, noise canceling headphones from Raycon. It's a black-founded company, and when they're in those headphones, it's you who are doing the noise canceling. You're canceling noise from their mouths. Merry Christmas from Tere. I mean, this is the 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 uh, dare I say hate uh, that is really at the core of all of these identitarian leftists, white, black, or other. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM five sixty. The Answer. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast, sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.